there's a lot of cocktail party sizzle and having alternative investments that you can brag about. Uh, my alternative investments have gotten 20% a year. My first question when somebody says my real estate or whatever alternative investment has gotten that, what would you get if you said right now, I want to liquidate my investment because I need the money? Would you still have a 20% per year average annual rate of return at that point? And they go blank. And the reason they go blank is very simple because they can't liquidate. And if they tried to, odds are they wouldn't have the money. And that's a little more extreme than we normally get. But I've been at this now for 40 plus years. Yeah. Once more unto the breach, dear friends. Else fill the wall up with our English dead. Good morning again, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls. Welcome back to another exciting second hour of the Personal Wealth Coach. Exciting for us, at least. The rest of you might be snoozing. I have heard people say that they play our podcast so that they can go to sleep. So at least we're getting some benefit out there to people that listen to us. If you have insomnia, we may be your solution. Uh, It has been shown to work in at least one known case. So, Well, I've I've been known to fall asleep while speaking on the radio. Well, that that seems like it would be a very um, somnolent activity. Was it was absolutely <laughs> thoroughly somnolent. I mean, I'm just talking along, and at the end of it, you said, "What did you say?" And I can't remember because I think I was asleep while I was saying oh, it. Right, exactly. How many years have we been doing this now? Uh, I've been doing it since '98. That's 24 years. You've been doing it since '96, mm-hmm. so 26 years. That's mm-hmm. a long time to talk. We've been talking talk. for that long. Yeah, We talk 26 years, and what do you get? Another day older and deeper in debt. There we go. Change the subject here a little bit, dude, and it's one that you probably like a lot. Um, There is is one negative in the economy right now that generally precedes a recession. Doesn't necessarily forecast a recession, but we haven't talked much about for a couple of weeks, so it's worth saying. There is a magic line that is... I say magic line, a rule of thumb that was crossed uh, in August, and that is rents versus house payments. Now, that's a very complicated problem because you have to look at the size of the house. Obviously, the house payment on a mansion is going to be higher than anybody is paying in rent anywhere, a lot higher. But if we look at equitable square feet, equitable, try to make it as equitable as you can, and the Mortgage Bankers Association did that, uh, and they released it. Um, if you say, if you're going to rent this many square feet in this kind of neighborhood versus buying this many square feet in this kind of neighborhood in their equivalent, what's the difference between the two? The average mortgage payment, the mean mortgage payment and the mean rent, when they are carefully balanced, the mortgage payment is now one and a half times the rent. Now in 2020, they were in a one-to-one ratio. When they're at a one-to-one ratio, and this is a rule of thumb, do not go out and act on it. I'm, I'm just saying, but it is an indicator. If they're in a one-to-one ratio, you're better off buying than you are renting if you do so for a long period of time. 
obviously if if you're paying and i'll just use a a number here let's say if you're paying two thousand dollars a month rent which sounds absurd to me but i realize people are doing that and you have the opportunity to buy a similar abode a similar residence for a two thousand dollar a month house payment man if you're going to be there for any length of time any five years or so the house payment is the better deal because of the fact that you are actually buying something rather than just paying rent on the other hand if you're paying two thousand dollars a month rent again which sounds absurd to me but i know people are doing it and to buy the equivalent house after you make your down payment is three thousand dollars a month mm, no probably not a good idea to buy a house at that point that's just kind of a it, it's just kind of a rule of thumb but it is an indication that housing prices have gotten beyond the point where it makes sense to go out for many people and buy a house at this point. And we're seeing that because the number of people buying houses is falling off. Now, why did the house payment go up? Well, one thing, interest rates went up. Interest rates have gone up on mortgages. They're in the 5.5% range right now, maybe higher. Depends on where you go and your credit and a whole host of things. So they're up, so that raises that. But also the price of housing is up, and that raises your house payment. So it's probably an indication that the housing market has turned around and will probably go back downhill again before too long. I don't think we're going to have a real estate collapse because we don't have a bunch of empty houses with nobody in them that people are trying to flip. But I think we'll see a slump in real estate values probably over the next year and maybe longer. And I just wanted to throw that out there because that's something that's going. And, and by the way, that means few, and fewer houses are being built, which means fewer people being paid to build houses. But that's not as big a piece of the economy as it once was. There's just not enough people building houses to begin with. They weren't because we don't have enough people who to hire to do that. Enough, and that was my subject. Okay. Yeah. Um, John, our faithful inquisitor, has asked us again another question. Um, mm-hmm. this, I'm gonna. I'll, I'll, I will serve it up to you. Um, All right. His question's simple. What are feeder funds? But it comes from an article in the Wall Street Journal. Secondary buyers expect investors to seek exits. Um, And it says in there, wealthy investors flock to private equity in recent years in pursuit of higher returns, often through vehicles called feeder funds that aggregate many investments into a single commitment to one fund. So go ahead. Well, feeder funds has a multitude of meaning. But in this particular case, what we're talking about, the fact that it's, it's alternative investments we're, we're talking about here, which, by the way, are intrinsically dangerous. They're not well-regulated. Uh, they are inherently illiquid, and that's what the article is about. And they can report some really, really good returns that aren't really there. And in other words, you have a really, really good return until you want to get some money back, and then you may have no return or a loss. So specifically, a feeder fund... A SPAC, one of those big stocks that came out where you dumped a bunch of money into it and then it was going to be invested somewhere. A SPAC is a feeder fund. There are a lot of limited partnerships that bring in money to support one master partnership. That's a feeder fund. But you're correct in that absolutely the vast majority of that money is spent on something in the alternative world. So back back to you. So. For example, let's just say that you are very, very wealthy and you want to invest in specifically in a portfolio of real estate in the Dallas area. And I don't know why you'd want to do that. But anyway, let's say you decided you wanted to do that. You, no matter how wealthy you are, unless you are one of the top 1% of 1%, 
you're really not going to get much attention if you try to do that. $50 million is not a lot of money to the people who do this kind of thing. Yeah. So let's say you only want to invest $500,000 or $250,000. You're an accredited investor, which means you have a lot of money to invest and not necessarily a lot of sense. And somebody wants to invest your money for you and say, this is a really good deal. So you jump into it, but you don't meet the minimum. Well, what happens is these, there are companies that aggregate the money together, the 50,000 here and the 200,000 there, and they build a small, they build a fund, which by the way, is not insured, not guaranteed and very poorly regulated. And they will then go to the real estate, the real estate people who own big chunks of real estate and say, we'd like to buy into your real estate investments in Dallas. Those are called feeder funds when they aggregate that money together. Anytime, and, and let, me, let me back up and, and say something about that. Anytime you pool your money with somebody else's money, you are taking a huge risk unless you know what you're doing and unless you have researched it a little bit. Mutual funds are pools of money that go out and buy stocks and they buy them in big chunks and they pay for expensive managers to manage the stock portfolio or the bond portfolio. And, and there's no way you could afford to hire that manager to manage your money on your own unless you're fabulously wealthy. So the, that is, so what happens when we, when they do that, a mutual fund is regulated under the investment company act of 1940. It has to be transparent. There's a bunch of rules that they have to follow. The, uh, manager of the fund has to be a fiduciary. I mean, we, we've talked about that before. These private feeder funds, money is pooled together. And it just, what happens there is not very transparent for the understatement of the century. You really need a team of attorneys and accountants to look at the structure uh, that you just pooled your money into to make sure that it's not going someplace you didn't want it to go or it isn't disappearing into somebody's pocket. And then the feeder funds feed into something else. And they may report some tremendous returns over time, but you don't know what you're going to get until you sell it. And very commonly, and this is what the article is about, the, the investors who invest in these privately managed uh, alternative investment accounts say, we want some money back. And there's no way to get it. You can't sell the bricks out of a building, for example. Well, you uh, could. A part of the building. It's you very could, difficult. To, you probably will not get the full market value as right. a percentage of the building, though. If you take 1% of the building away as bricks and try to sell it, you are unlikely to get 1% of the value of the building. <clears throat> My guideline to people over the years has been fairly simple. If you want to invest in, Ill, in an illegal, illegal, illiquid uh, alternate investment, whether it's a real estate limited partnership, an oil and gas limited partnership, a uh, privately non-traded real estate investment trust, whatever it is that we're talking about. If you can afford to pay a competent accountant and a competent attorney to examine this thing and say, this is in your best interest, you're probably qualified to invest in it. If you can't afford to pay a qualified attorney an accountant to take a hard look at this and make sure it's exactly what you thought it was, you should stay away from those and go with something simple like a mutual fund. Yeah. Right. That, that, uh, feeder fund, um, I, I mentioned SPAC. Uh, so let's kind of go back. You, you did a really good uh, definition of why you should be careful with these things. But a, a feeder fund, 
a SPAC is a special acquisition company uh, or a special purpose acquisition company. They are oftentimes listed on a major exchange. A rule for them is they're not allowed to tell you what they're going to invest the money in before you give it to them, which that to me would be a deal breaker every time. But a lot of people think this is great because there's a lot of these SPACs have very smart people running them and so they've got this history of good profitability, so on. I, I for sure would not be, um, <laughs> you're looking at me like you don't know what I'm, I'm motioning for you to stop. Um, uh, okay. Um, the, uh, the idea behind a SPAC is it's feeding toward another investment at some point. Whatever that other investment is that you're feeding toward uh, is not clearly known to the people that are in the end, the ones that are actually doing the investment. Uh, another way, I mean, you brought up mutual funds. In its most basic level, a mutual fund is a feeder fund. Now, it's highly regulated. You can still lose money in these things. Don't, don't get us wrong. Mutual funds don't have safety written all over them. But they have protections against fraud written all over them. Um, fraud is illegal. So you could say, well, there's fraud protections everywhere. People can, if you have a normal regulator that's inspecting folks on a regular basis, it's generally safer than if you don't. That's not saying that mutual funds are just safe places and everybody should go them. That's, you got to do your own research. But when you get into what's called accredited if you're an accredited investor, that used to have the term called sophisticated investor. They removed that term because the only definition is that you have a million dollars liquid that you could invest somewhere or have invested already. That doesn't make you sophisticated. You could have inherited it. You could have had it in a 401k and you just rolled it over and decided that, hey, I, now I have a million dollars invested. That number hasn't changed with inflation for the entirety of my career. So I started in, this, in, in the investment world in finance in 1991 as a, as a pipsqueak little guy working with my dad who'd already been in it for nearly a decade. So by the way, my dad is the older bald guy on the radio with it. This is Jake speaking. He's Jeff. So in 1991, an accredited or sophisticated investor had a million dollars invested, and that was really big. Come forward 30 plus years, it's the same number. Have we had any inflation since then? Well, yeah. Yeah, we have. Uh, that same person should have somewhere in the vicinity of $5 million invested before they would be considered accredited based on infl inflation. But it hasn't changed. So what does that mean? Well, if you have $5 million invested, it generally means you can hire an attorney to look at a contract before you sign it. Every time you sign a contract, it generally means a lot of things about your capabilities in research. You can hire somebody to do some due diligence for you if you're not an expert in the field. It doesn't mean that if you have a million dollars total invested anymore. Most people do not have the capability if they have a million dollars invested to hire an attorney or an expert in the field to do research on an investment of $100,000. And that's oftentimes these feeder funds take investments of, a, of, a, of $100,000. Uh, so 
us coming in and saying, be careful there. I have had conversations with a series of clients over the last year where they've been approached by these feeders saying, look at how well we've done in these other products that we've recently sold. And the number one thing I have to tell them every time is those products are not the same as the one they are selling today. These feeder funds that have done so well in, for instance, in Denver, in real estate. Well, over the last decade, they've done extremely well in real estate in Denver. Well, you could have had blind a blindfold on uh, and been drunk as can be. Well, Denver allows you to be high as well, drunk and high and blindfolded and buying real estate in Denver and done really, really well. If you haven't removed the blindfold and you're still on the same substances, it might be a little harder to make a profit in real estate in Denver right now. So be aware of that. Just People hear this all the time and they ignore it. Past performance is no guarantee of future return. That phrasing goes out the window when someone says, well, the last decade our fund has produced a 47% profit for our... Yeah. Past performance is no guarantee, and it really isn't a guarantee when you're in real estate and you've been doing well for 10 years while the whole real estate market's been doing well for 10 years because we have these cycles. <laughs> yeah, you have something to add here. There's another issue here. When they say we did 47% or whatever. Um, can I see the accounting on that, please? Well, 47 well, the, the, this the, is what you often get no, what, in, what in these cases. Well, they say, yeah, you can see our accounting. It was done by our internal team here. Well, has it been audited? Uh, what, is, what do you mean? What, what do you mean? That's often right. the, the response. And very frankly, uh, when I was a stockbroker, and I occasionally, they occasionally realize that we're not stockbrokers anymore, and, they had, and people advertise to us, they talk about money raised as if that is proof that this is a good investment. We've raised... $12 billion over the last two years yeah, for our, this investment. Our seed round for this product alone is $10 million. Well, that means you've convinced $10 million to be that. It doesn't mean it's a good investment. Right. And and there's just, there's a world of danger. And and, and Jake said something. Invested, in, in other words, if you have a net worth, not counting your primary residence, of more than $1 million, and you have income in the last, two years and likely to have it in this year of uh, $200,000 or $300,000 included with a spouse. I hate to say that, but that doesn't make you wealthy. doesn't make you sophisticated. Uh, it means that you fundamentally a person who is approaching retirement and they've only got a million, they've got a million dollars in their 401k or wherever they've got their million dollars outside of their, their primary residence. And a couple is working and, and working together and they're making $300,000 I hate to say that, but you're still in the middle class and you're not sophisticated. The SEC needs to raise those numbers, but every time they go to raise the numbers, um, Congress gets involved because a lot of the donors, a lot of the donors to Congress who control what the congressmen do and don't do in many ways are people who have made their billions of dollars from convincing unsophisticated people to invest in the investments they have. And the bottom line to it is, they want lower income people to do it because they're less likely to dig. And it's, it's have, a dangerous area. Yeah, they have less capability of digging into it to see what's going on. They, they don't have the ability because they don't have the ex excess cash flow to hire an attorney to look into something just as a, of course you would. 
Uh, if you have $30 million and you're sitting on that and you're going to buy private stuff, you're going to say, I'm going to go buy some real estate with this. You could actually afford to hire a team of people to do it just for you. You would know everything about what you were buying before you buy it. You would know everything about the people in the management of the places that you bought. That is accredited in my mind. It is not the legal definition of accreditation anymore. Uh, if you have $100 million and you're out there doing it, if you don't have a team of people that you're working with, if you're only going through these feeder funds, then you're hurting yourself badly because you're being charged more than you would be if you hired the team yourself. So just be, be aware that there is some form of cocktail party bragging rights that comes with being called an accredited investor that's talking more to your ego than your ability to make a profit. Let me, if, let me, if that's okay with you, if you're okay with your ego being stoked rather than your profit being stoked, then this is okay. Go for it. But otherwise, hire somebody before you get involved in that stuff. Hire someone that works directly for you to analyze it for you. Let me take this soapbox just a step further since we're on it. Man, it's a good soapbox to be on. It'll keep our feet clean for months. Yes. I was asked this week, do you guys, talking about our firm, set up portfolios of individual stocks and bonds for clients? And I said, no. And then I got asked why. And the answer is, well, frankly, I was a stockbroker for 25 years, and I figured this out during a 25-year period. I've seen a lot of portfolios come into our office, statements from people who have who've had stockbrokers with Edward Jones, that seems to be the most popular, and lots of other companies, Merrill Lynch, you name it, they've been out there. And I look at that, all this complexity on this statement, and I look at all the reports the person's got, and there's a big thing missing. In many cases, the 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 person who's doing who has the investment portfolio has been with the company been with this brokerage firm for five or ten or fifteen years or whatever. Where is the internal rate of return? And when I ask about that, the typical investor says, "Do what? Where is the officially designated report that says here has been your compounded average annual rate of return in this account over the last ten years?" And they just look at me blankly. Brokerage firms don't offer that. Why don't they offer that? Well, because it wouldn't look very good. It would mostly look terrible. And people would be very unhappy. As a matter of fact, I saw one go by recently, or recently in the last year, where the people basically had less money than they had 10 years previous, and they'd taken very little money out, which should tell you something. And they thought they were doing really, really well. Because their broker kept telling them they were doing really, really, really very well. That is the reality that's out there. Why do we use mutual funds? Well, I'll give you something. This is my soapbox here, folks. This is my opinion, and that's the way I'm expressing it. I was a stockbroker. I attempted, I attempted to use the analyst numbers, the, the numbers we got from the brokerage firm, and the recommendations we got from the brokerage firm and everywhere else I could find. And I attempted to assemble stock portfolios and bond portfolios of individual stocks and bonds for my clients, my customers, that would do really, really well. And I would sit down and figure out over the years, the rate of return they got. And I was very disappointed. And then I would turn around and look at a mutual fund, a one of the better managed mutual funds, obviously, because that's what I was looking for. And we look at the rate of return because the mutual fund has to present an audited, objectively, fiduciarily audited rate of return and say, here's what we did. 
and they have to publish it, and the SEC holds their feet to the fire. And I looked at what they did and what I had done and said, wow, they've done better for their clients than I have. And then it hit me like a ton of bricks. The head of a major mutual fund that says senior manager or the senior manager teams, the people on the team, generally make seven figures a year for buying and selling stocks and bonds, figuring out which ones to buy and sell. And if I were that good as a stockbroker at picking stocks and bonds and had the, first off, they also have anywhere from 15 to 150 people doing analysis for them. Goodness, I would go work for a mutual fund and manage the mutual fund, not manage stock portfolios for my clients. And it suddenly struck me, there are people who are really, really good at managing stock portfolios and they never talk to the investors. They spend all their time and their team spends all their time managing the portfolio and they have computers and analysts and lots of stuff and I'm trying to compete with. And that's when we started using mutual funds. That's when I said, okay, forget this. I can assemble a portfolio of mutual funds. I can tell you because they report so clearly, here's the rate of return you got over this period of time. And it's probably going to be a lot better than anything that I could put together as a stockbroker. And I made that change a long time ago. And that's one thing that you should talk about. There's a lot, Jake said, there's a lot of sizzle, a lot of cocktail party sizzle in having a portfolio of stocks that you can talk about. There's a lot of cocktail party sizzle in having alternative investments that you can brag about. Uh, my alternative investments have gotten 20% a year. My first question when somebody says my real estate or whatever alternative investment has gotten there. What would you get if you said, right now, I want to liquidate my investment because I need the money? Would you still have a 20% per year average annual rate of return at that point? And they go blank. And the reason they go blank is very simple because they can't liquidate. And if they tried to, odds are they wouldn't have the money. And that's a little more extreme than we normally get. But I've been at this now for 40 plus years. Yeah. When you're trying Seems to do- really unhappy. When you're trying to do something like asset allocation, which is taking advantage of the different asset classes in the market, and you're trying to do that by finding the best companies in an asset class to buy, would each asset class requires a tremendous amount of research just to figure out which, what's the best ones to buy in there? Or are you just going around trying to find a lot of good companies? Well, what does that even mean? If you specialize, then you hopefully are doing better than if you're not specialized. And we, I think that you can look at uh, managerial track records for long. This is, this is even better. Uh, there are lots of studies that show that 90% of your return in your stock-based portfolio has one factor. 100% of 90% is based on what asset class it's in. And if you want to take advantage of that and choose the right, you know, say, which asset classes should I be in? Well, you've got to be in a lot of asset classes. Well, then you have to do the research in each of those asset classes. We've determined that the best way to approach that is look at managers specific to those asset classes and look how well they've done in that asset class against people that are invested just there. So compare apples to apples and say, how well have they done in their own asset class? And that has really worked well for us. Uh, I realize we're giving all our secrets away on the air, but these are secrets well, that require not. actually, uh, it's a concept of a secret that require a lot of work after you have the secret to get it. So we're pretty happy in doing so. And if somebody wants to know more about it, we can tell them, hey, here's what we do. Doing it is the hard part. Well, I wanted to bring Europe back into the picture um, 
this is a change of subject again. They, mm-hmm. they're, the entire Eurozone is experiencing a 9% inflation at the moment. And this is the lower end of the inflation gauges that, are, that we look at. It's kind of like when we talk about the United States, when we're looking at personal consumption expenditures, we're looking at like a 6.4% inflation rather than the 8.7 number that is often bandied about. A lot has to do with whether or not you're renting your house out or, or not. Um, so when they say 9%, if you look at the more generalized, including all the other things, it's a much higher number there. What's going on there? What, why is that happening? Well, number one, they buy a lot of stuff, a lot of grain and food products from Ukraine and from Russia. Well, they're not getting that. So the food prices are way, way up. Um, they get the vast majority of their petroleum products, natural gas, petrol, uh, what we would call gasoline, uh, from Russia. And Russia's not playing nicely. Uh, they invaded Ukraine. Europe said, hey, that was bad. We're going to stop doing business in a lot of areas. The United States we're gonna, said the same thing. We're going to stop doing business with Russia in a lot of things. Uh, we're not going to try to impede the flow of gas from Russia, though. We're going to say, all right, we'll still buy that stuff from you. Well, Russia said, well, fine, we're going to turn it off. So the Nord Stream gas pipeline, Nord number one, they haven't completed number two yet. That's probably never going to get completed now. Russia turned that off for three days saying, hey, we've got technical issues. The uh, parts that we ordered from Germany haven't arrived. Germany then replied by posting the shipping information for the parts that were ordered and that they'd already been delivered to Russia months before, that the parts were not the process. That hasn't been impeded. So Russia went, Russia's not really known for trustworthiness in the moment, at the moment. They're talking about things. Basically, anything they say loudly is untrue. They, uh, the Europeans said, we're going to put a cap on what we'll pay to Russia for petrol, for gasoline, for for oil products. And um, within a few hours after that announcement, um, Gazprom, which is the state-owned uh, company that delivers natural gas to Europe, said, oh, for some reason, this technical issue that has already been proven to be not a technical issue is going to go on indefinitely instead of three days that were slightly coordinated to be just in front of this conversation that you Europeans had about putting a cap on our prices. So the trade war in Europe with Russia is very real. In uh, the Czech Republic right now, this is new news that's happening at this very moment. Tens of thousands of Czechs are protesting in Prague in Wenceslas Square. Yes, that same one from the Christmas song, because that's where King Wenceslas was. Um, the 70,000 people standing out there saying, hey, we actually need to be able to run our businesses. We actually need to uh, be able to heat our homes this winter. And that's happening right now. They are very likely in Europe heading directly full speed ahead into a recession. France has just announced that all of the nuclear plants that it, w- that it had shut down over the last decade are reopening this year. 
they got scared when there was a earthquake and tsunami in Japan and said, we're going to shut down all of our nuclear plants. They were already moving that direction. Well, they said by winter, these nuclear plants are going to be back up and online and they'll be supplying power, not just for France, but for parts of Germany. Germany is talking about going back to nuclear. At the same time, Germany is working on a series of liquid natural gas import facilities, import ports. If you can say port two times like that and keep a good meaning, an import port. Um, what else would you call that? A port for importing. Wait, it is. That's what a port is. So they're putting import facilities for liquid natural gas. Import facilities. There we go. F- faculties. No, I lost all my faculties. Right. <laughs> facilities. Well, those two. Uh, where are they getting it from? Well, they're getting it from the UK. And what's even better, they're getting it from Norway and, uh, and the Nordic states that are also out there in the North Sea getting natural gas out. They're also getting it from the United States. We're building export liquid natural gas facilities at a speed at which we haven't for the last 40 years. Well, there's never been a time that we built this fast. We say 40 years because that's how long we've been measuring. But the reality is we've never exported liquid natural gas anywhere near the speed that we're doing it. It's still not fast enough. We can't get it out fast enough. This is why prices are dropping in the United States on these same items. Because we can't get it out in time. We're increasing our production, but our export facilities are not they don't have the capacity to send out the liquid natural gas so it's cheaper here it's building up a reserve uh in when you look at what's happening in china with these major lockdowns china's economy is going into recession as well now china's not going to admit that but we've talked those of you that have listened for us to us for very long know that we're listening and reading to people that are doing business in China on a regular basis that's spread out across large portions of China. A lot of our window into what's happening in China is being limited because many of those companies are leaving China. Well, many of those companies are the reason why China's had the growth that it has had. So when they leave and our window goes with it, part of uh, that window closing is us knowing that a big push of growth in China is leaving with the window. That window that we could see into China's economy was the external force that was adding growth. And that's going away. So gas prices are dropping for a different reason as well. China's not using it the way it used to. It's buying a lot of gas from Russia at discount, big discount. But Russia is not selling it to a lot of other places. The amount of discount that they're getting from Russia is causing China's demand to drop for the rest of the world, which is causing prices to drop, which means Russia is probably pumping more gas now to China than they were to Europe. We just need to get facilities in place in Europe to provide them and let Russia and China do whatever their incestuous relationship is in, in a dark room. You, you have something to add. Yes. One of the things when we've discussed China a lot, one of the things that has buoyed the gross domestic product of China and made it the second largest economy in the world measured by GDP. We've talked about the fact that GDP may not be the best measure 
they get a lot of boost on their GDP from something that probably shouldn't be there. But another big chunk of their boost comes from the appreciating value of real estate. Yeah. Real estate in the move from very rural poverty into the cities, this huge flow has occurred. A lot of money has been generated and they are frankly suffering a real estate collapse right now. Not terribly unlike the one we saw in 2007 through nine. They're dealing with it very differently and I don't think very effectively. Um, People are terrified of China. We've said China, China is not someone to be, not a, a nation to be terrified of. Uh, as far as global domination is concerned, they just don't have the capacity. And people have argued that China's GDP is growing so much faster than ours, and their this is as bigger as and their that's are bigger. A lot of that is based on highly leveraged, very deeply indebted real estate value appreciation. And very frankly, that's a bad bet. That's a bad place to put your money and your economy. And the Chinese are figuring that out. And they really are trying to figure out how to keep their economy from cratering right now as the real estate values come down. They are cutting mortgage rates. They are cutting official lending rates in China as we are raising them because we have an overheated economy. They're cutting because they're sliding downhill. Uh, where we'll go from here, Lord, I'm not smart enough to know. And most of the news about it is people forecasting whether when it, when it bottoms or if it bottoms or what will happen or when or where. Very frankly, the only thing I'm concerned about is your economy gets into the position where it may be about to collapse and Chairman G decides it's a good idea to wage a war right now to pump up the economy. Um, not a good idea in the long term, but that doesn't keep it keep people from doing it from time to time. Um, although there are certainly signs that he's not about to do that. And we're about out of time. This is the Personal Wealth Coach with Jeff and Jake McClure. Uh, this is the Personal Wealth Coach, and we do make uh, other statements than really bad puns about songs. Uh, we are uh, a, a finance program, as you would probably guess from the Personal Wealth Coach being our title. The Personal Wealth Coach is not just the title of the program. It's also the name of an SEC-registered investment advisory firm. All right. Well, does that mean that the SEC likes us? What would you say to that, sir? I would say that the SEC is professionally dislikes almost everyone. Right. That is no implication of the SEC's approval just because we're registered with them. Why is the radio program and the firm named the same thing because we have to give this disclosure no matter what it is and it's less disclosureable it takes less time to do if it's just the same name so we've been doing this program here uh on this in, on this station 1400 a.m in temple since 1996 we've been doing this a long time and we haven't been paid for it ever uh we also Damn. have not ever paid for it so we've been doing this a long, long time, and the whole idea is education. We do advertise as a firm for on the studio, uh, on the channel, for this radio program. We don't actually advertise for our firm. We're advertising for the radio program. So what we're saying is that this is educational, and we do occasionally get business from it, but our purpose here is truly education. That being said, it's not advice. Advice would be if I knew who you were, if the other bald guy, Jeff, knew who you were, and 
we were able to have a private conversation with you about things in your best interest versus broadcasting to everyone. So we're going to be talking about education, which is why we do the program to begin with. So those two disclosures are really one. And having said that, do you deem to tell us another disclosure? Yes. The information we present on this educational radio program has been obtained from sources we deem to be reliable, but we make no warranty or guarantee as to the accuracy or completeness of said information. And he really can't get through the week without that. I think uh, if you would like to talk to us off the air, we actually give individually, uh, individually crafted and customized advice based on what people are trying to achieve. That's generally portfolio management and portfolio management. And that's generally for people with higher net worths, but we make exceptions occasionally. Um, And so you can contact us locally voicemail available during the weekend, but actual real live people know phone tree during the week at 254-947-1111. You can reach that line tool free at 1-800-914-7526. That's 800-914-PLAN. And I think it's important to note that we're an independent fiduciary firm. We don't work for a corporation. We only work for our clients. Right. Exactly. Uh, you can go to our webpage, thepersonalwealthcoach.com or tpwc.com. There's a contact form. You can use emails, Jeff or Jake at tpwc.com. There are uh, recordings of the radio program going back years, newsletters going back decades, uh, and you can find us wherever podcasts are given. Um, thank you very much for listening on a nice Saturday morning. And until next week, this has been The Personal Wealth Coach. <laughs>